This podcast and the many that follow are proudly brought to you by our partner, Titleist, the number one ball in golf. Now, as it relates to earning an edge, our friends at Titleist have been the leaders since the early 1900s. And in order to compete and win at the highest level, frankly, there's no room for second best. For this reason, the best players in the world trust Titleist. I'm Corey Lundberg, and this is episode three of the Earn Your Edge podcast powered by Under Armour and Titleist. And before we get into this week's episode, I just wanted to take a quick moment to express our gratitude to everyone for the support of this project so far. Thanks to everyone that subscribed and rated on iTunes and sent us their positive feedback, and especially to those that have taken the time to share this show with others to pass along that this might be a worthwhile use of their time. You know, speaking from our own experience, that's how we've always discovered the podcast that we valued the most from a like-minded friend that's our colleague that has helped us discover something new, that something that would resonate with us. And we're delighted and honestly, pleasantly surprised at just how many of you have done that through just two episodes. And we're also motivated to continue that positive momentum and in an effort to spread our message and insights from athletes to a wide audience. So we're going to announce a second giveaway. We've already handed out five pairs of the Under Armour Speed 2s, and now it's the new TS driver from Titleist that was just launched to tour players last week at the U.S. Open. So your challenge is to help us spread the word. If you've got someone that you think would benefit from the messages shared, pass it along and get them to subscribe and screenshot some evidence of their subscription and then message it back to you. Uh, and then shoot us an email at info at altusperformance.com with all the subscription screenshots that you've collected from friends and whoever has the most will win a new TS driver, which won't be released to public until later this fall. So as if the knowledge that you've passed along something really valuable and helpful to your friends wasn't enough, you'll get a, a new driver from Titleist for your efforts. So with that said, time to dig into episode three. This is a little departure from our structure in episode one and two, where Cameron was at the US Open last week and had a really, really cool conversation with Brad Faxon. And it was so good. We just wanted to share it in its entirety. So without further delay, here's episode three of the Earn Your Edge podcast. Enjoy. I want to welcome you to the Earn Your Edge podcast. By passion and practice, we at Altus are driven to decode the difference makers that high performers possess, the ways and means they use to earn their edge, to create separation from the mass, to leave mediocrity in the rearview mirror, and travel this pathway to mastery. Be it through nature or nurture or a mixture of both, the journey to uncover these things is the journey that we're on. And I'm joined here today by Brad Faxon, and he needs no introduction. But by way of accolade, attended Furman University, was an All-American in 1982 and 83, Haskins Award winner in 1983, and for those that aren't aware of what the Haskins Award represents, it's the best player in college golf. Also a member of the uh, Walker Cup team in 1983, he's an eight-time winner on the PGA Tour and represented the United States two times on the Ryder Cup team. Thanks for joining me, Brad. Cameron, my pleasure. Thank you. So as you probably heard in that preamble, the odyssey that we're on, the journey that we're on is unpacking high performance. You've performed at a very high level for three, three and a half decades now in the game of golf. But yet, I think a starting point is I want to go back to the origins or the roots of that performance, the formative years. Can you describe for me as best you can with as much color as you want your formative years starting the game? Where did this passion to get involved in golf come from? Well, it started in Rhode Island where I grew up. My dad was a golfer. His whole family was there with history of golfers, brothers, sisters, grandfather. I think the biggest blessing I had was being able to live in a town, Barrington, Rhode Island, where I was a 
brought up in this beautiful town in this country club there, Rhode Island Country Club, and I had a couple mentors in my life other than my dad. But I, I, I was a caddy. I was worked in the locker room as a shoeshine boy. What age are we now? Caddy and locker room shoeshine boy. What age? You know, I would have been 13, 14 okay. years old. Yeah. And, and, you know, playing the game, but casually, you know, I played other sports. I was a baseball player, I was a hockey player. I played a lot of squash and table tennis, you know, just kind of messing around doing a little bit of everything, which back then I didn't know that was probably good for what I'd end up doing for my livelihood because I developed a lot of skills, eye hand coordination, you know, body movement, body awareness stuff that, you know, players are taught that later on in their lives, but it's better to learn it earlier subconsciously in, sure. in my opinion. Yep. But I learned a work ethic from two guys. One of them, Fred Bruno, the pro at the club where I grew up, you know, a hard driving Italian guy that got to work every day at five o'clock. And his passion was to make the experience of the members better every single day. And I saw that. I witnessed it. I watched how he talked to people. He called everybody Mr. or Mrs. I learned how to look somebody in the eye and shake their hand. So I, I saw the social skills and the, and the work ethic that he promoted to everybody in the, in the caddy yard and as a player. And then right down the street from where I lived was the Akushnet Company, Titleist. Mm -hmm. And their executives were members, a lot of them the members at the club. And you know Wally Uline, he was kind of my big brother. He was a guy that I, I could go to, and, and he was the first one that put me in touch with people like Earl Nightingale or Dennis Waitley, Power of Positive Thinking. And in, in your opening, when you mentioned nature versus nurture there's there's no way it's just one it has to be the combination of both and it was that environment that helped me to to learn you know my skills and my craft and you know wally his my fate he had a poster in his office at titleist and he came up you know from a salesman at titleist mm -hmm. and to run the biggest golf company in the world and he had it's it's not a race to see who gets there first it's a race to see who gets there and stays there the longest Love it. I love that. And I, mean, I tried to live that. Yeah. And so, as you've mentioned already, people and events shape who we are and shape uh, the course, the journey of our life. And one of the subjects that we oftentimes discuss in our coaching with youth athletes is the positive role that parents need to be playing. Can you reflect on the role that your parents played as you were a high-performance athlete in golf or engaged in other sports as well? Yeah. My dad was a, a good player. He was a scratch golfer, a club champion. And he was the biggest grinder. He was a grinder before you ever saw Corey Pavin or Raymond Floyd or Tiger Woods or Jordan Spieth. He was a guy that never really hit it great, but he could chip and putt. And, you know, it was a never give up attitude that I embraced that. And, mm -hmm. and my club, Rhode Island Country Club, was a hundred year old Donald Ross course. Well, it wasn't then, but it was an old Donald Ross course with a lot of undulation in the greens. And as a little kid, when I was young, I wasn't tall. I didn't hit the ball very far. But I learned to score. And I, I remember playing in adverse conditions when you live in Rhode Island, playing in the fall and the spring when it's blowing hard or it's colder, maybe not perfect conditions to practice on. Mm -hmm. But I, I saw so many putts that broke outside the hole, you mm -hmm. know, learned how to, you know, scramble when I wasn't hitting it well and playing against people older and better than me. And that was a great way to grow up. Mm -hmm, for sure. When did golf become your identity to the extent that you knew that you were good and you knew that there was a mountain that you wanted to climb? There was kind of like a couple moments in maybe 75 or 76, 14 or 15 years old. I had started to play some golf tournaments. I played hockey and 
you're not an American to know who Bobby Orr was. But I definitely Bobby know who Bobby Orr, Orr is, yeah. Okay, so Bobby <laughs> Orr was a Boston Bruin, and they had just won a couple Stanley Cups years before. And I was such a Bobby Orr fan, and I was playing on a travel team, a good hockey team, and I got clocked one day. I mean, I got knocked down, and I bell rung, and I'm thinking, why? Well, I want to keep doing this. You know, I wasn't going to be ever going to be a great hockey player, but I was good enough that I could have probably played four years in high school and maybe played a little bit in college. But I said, this golf is a little better. And they intersected both the hockey came into the spring. We were a spring sport. And I said, no, golf's going to be the way I can go. And I'm not going to get hurt doing this. Sure, sure. And then take me through the decision-making process to go to Furman. Well, I, I started to play well, and that's, you know, when, when I mentioned to you about Raleigh, Wally Uline said, you know, my progress was never immediate. It, mm-hmm. was, it, was, it was steady, and I, I won the state junior championship when I was 14 years old, which was young for anybody back then to win it, and, but we didn't have AJGA tours. We didn't have national tours, and I was playing local tournaments, local events in New England, and I dotted uh, my summer with some of those, and then I got a great break from my dad two years into my high school i was playing number one on my high school team we were state champions and i was working as a caddy and as a a locker room so i love that my dad you know my dad was a successful guy but he was hey look you got to learn to work you Mm -hmm. know and he saw that my passion for golf and he saw how i was starting to improve and he he made a deal with me so look if i let you play golf as if it's your job as if you were caddying as if you were working in the locker room that's going to probably earn you a scholarship and that's going to be way more money than you can make or you could earn and put in your pocket. And it'll save, you know, selfishly it would save him back then tuition was twelve or $13,000 a year. He said, can we make a deal and shake on it? Mm-hmm. And it was the greatest deal anybody could have ever done for me. And it, somebody might've abused that at one time. And I took it to heart. We didn't have a contract, mm-hmm. but it was like, you got it, dad. That's yeah. my job. Yeah, for sure. It's been my job ever since. Fantastic. The constraints, the challenges of growing up in a cold climate. How would they overcome? We don't, we don't face that in Texas. We don't face that in Australia. But there are regions in, in the world that we know of that cultivate this great talent. But in your specific case, was there something that you did through the wintertime that kept you in golf shape? So a couple things. And first of all, I remind everybody, when I was in 1975, 14 years old, the, the most well-known golfers in the world were Arnold Palmer, Jack Nicklaus, and Tom Watson. Mm-hmm. And they were all from cold weather climates. So I never wanted to use that as an excuse being a Rhode Islander. I also thought of players that had, didn't have it handed to them, like Seve Ballesteros, Sam Sneed, Lee Trevino, that you know were hitting using sticks or playing on sand greens or wherever they played, and say, I don't have to have ideal conditions. Mm-hmm. So I learned to play when it wasn't perfect. I was okay when it was 45 or 50 miles an hour, and the greens were aerated and bumpy, mm-hmm. and, and thought... That's kind of when I got a, an idea that the mind was pretty strong and that, that I could beat people maybe not just on getting the ball from A to B, but how you think about yeah. yourself and others when you play. There's actually some fascinating research of uh, what's called PCDE's psychological characteristics of developing excellence that says that they turn those obstacles that I just described upside down, which was your experience as a youth player. So it's fantastic to, for you to echo that experience, that sentiment. Yeah, you know, Julie Inkster, who works for our team uh, with Fox, made a statement last week at the U.S. Women's, maybe it was the Curtis Cup. The Curtis Cup was last week. And I was listening to her. I I wasn't there. But she said, you know, this girl, she was talking one of the players on the team, has a real talent. You just can't teach that. And I don't know that you can't teach that. I really think you can now, especially like you said, we know so much more than we used to. Mm -hmm. And you can learn it as a kid. But I think you can 
you can bring that out and improve people at all ages. For sure. And that's what the, the purpose of this podcast is to identify what are those hidden elements to developing talent, developing excellence, developing high performance, no matter what the vernacular we want to use so we can take those action points, those steps and, and implement them. So let's step forward. You're the best collegiate player in the country and you turn professional. Can you give us a picture of what it's like as the best collegiate player standing on top of that mountain, jumping into the professional game and realizing you're playing against perhaps your idols? Perhaps a pool of players that is deeper than what you may have anticipated. I'm not too sure. I don't mean to put words in your mouth, but that's the perspective I want to unpack here. Sure. I went to Furman and I, I kind of had a chip on my shoulder because I, I had gotten to be a pretty good player as a junior in Rhode Island. Didn't get recruited by many colleges because I didn't play nationally very well until my summer of my after I graduated high school. And then I got some calls from Wake Forest and Florida, some of the better teams. But I already committed to go to Furman. I knew I was going to make the team. Our team had a schedule to play against all those teams. And I just thought, golf's an individual sport. If I'm playing against the best, that's what I want to do. I didn't want to risk going to a school like Wake Forest, not making the team, and sit there for two years mm -hmm. where I could play against them. And, and I got a letter from Jesse Haddock. Jesse Haddock was the, the famous coach at Wake Forest. He said, you can't come to Wake Forest and just walk on. And I said, really? So I kept that letter. I kept it in a drawer at, at school. And after my sophomore year, I had made honorable mention All-American as a freshman. He wrote me a letter and said, hey, would you like to come to Wake Forest? We could help you out. Man, I wish you could see the chills in the back of my neck right now. <laughs> I, it just it drove me crazy. And I stayed at firm and I was lucky. And we, we didn't have a great team. We had good kids. We had a coach that had never coached before. He had gotten hired my freshman year. My, the coach that recruited me got fired me right before I got there. So we were on a journey together. Mm -hmm. Great guy named Willie Miller. Yeah. He had never been on an airplane before. <laughs> and we get there, and then I was All-American those last two years playing against and then turned pro, played Walker Cup in, the, in May, and then turned pro, got some exemptions, almost got my card through the top 125, missed by a few spots. And then got my uh, tour card that fall, first mm -hmm. try. Yeah. And so then you're teeing up against guys that you were idolizing up until that point. How different was it, the talent pool, the depth? No, it was incredible, Cameron. And my, so my first year was 1984, and the top of the class there was Corey Pavin. Mm -hmm. And one of the first events that we played in 84 was the Phoenix. It was the Phoenix Open back then, which is the famous tournament now at TPC at Scottsdale. But Corey Pavin was a year older than me. And he, the second event we played, he was leading the first round. And I thought to myself, I said, that's almost not allowed. You know, at our age, there were very few players. When you look at the players like Jordan Spieth now or Justin Thomas that come out so prepared, Tiger Woods, that was almost unheard of then. The, the exception would have been a Jack Nicholas, but nobody else. And, and there were veteran players like Hubert Green that they called everybody rookie or rook. And it wasn't accepted if you came out and played well. But when I saw Corey do that right away, I said, okay, it is allowed. And, and that, that helped me to, to kind of figure out, I want to do this for a living. I don't want to be a journeyman. Mm -hmm. And, you know, some people might think my career was a journeyman career, but played for a long time. I, I represented my country. I, I don't think I'd trade a thing. So let's take a quick break in the action to recognize one of our partners, Under Armour. It's Under Armour's mission to make all athletes better through passion, design, and the relentless pursuit of innovation. And that ethos or mission statement couldn't be more aligned with the Earn Your Edge podcast. We're thankful to be powered by Under Armour. 
did you think about and then execute on the process of getting better as a professional, recognizing you were playing against the best in the world and what separates good from great and great to world class? There are very small facets or very small margins, if you will. Yeah, I was like a barnacle on a ship. I, I was a Klingon to the, to the great players in the world. And I said, I, I have to ask every question I can ask of every player I could get my hands on. And the players I hung around with the most when I got out there, and not hang out me going to dinner, but I want to play a practice round with Tom Watson. I want mm -hmm. to play a practice round with Greg Norman. I want to play a practice round with Tom Kite. And I was like an amoeba. I couldn't absorb enough, ask enough questions, watch the practice. I loved being on the range and just sitting there watching guys hit balls. What do they do? How do they think? And, and then how can I apply that to myself? Because mm -hmm. just because Greg Norman does one thing doesn't mean it's going to help me, but I certainly wanted to see it. Payne Stewart would have been another one of those guys. Sure, sure. And so from a strengths and weaknesses standpoint, if we think of strengths as the ceiling and the weaknesses as, as your floor, were you of the mindset that you could lift both or were you looking to always maintain those strengths versus weaknesses? Can you unpack that? Yeah. And I, I would say that in my journey, I had a good short game. I was always a pretty good putter and chipper of the ball. And I spent so much time early in my career trying to improve my longer game, whether it was to try to hit it farther, straight, or both, and become something that I really wasn't, mm -hmm. that I think it affected at the time my strengths. And finally, I, I, you know, I was one of the first players that worked with Bob Rotella, who was a performance coach before we could say what a performance coach was, right? Mm -hmm. he, we used words sports psychology, then you kind of had to hide, right? <laughs> exactly. He was like a sports psychologist, something must be wrong with the you. Ego hit, right? <laughs> yeah, so, so I, you know, he, he was the first guy who said, look, Brad, you're spending all kinds of time trying to improve your weaknesses when you have one of the greatest strengths anybody's ever had. So embrace that and, mm -hmm. and, and use that. And that really helped me. It, it, it didn't stop me from being curious or stop me from trying to work on that part of the game, but it also... It helped me to improve my short game where, you know, I knew I was, was good at it and, and people would recognize it, but it really didn't become more publicly popular until you win tournaments. And then when I started winning tournaments, that's when people said, boy, these guys got a great short game. Right. And that's a great segue into the next question. You at some point discovered the error in your ways. Do you see that same error in players that you see at your club, the players that you see on a weekly basis when you're broadcasting on the biggest stage in golf? And if not, what would be the one or maybe two errors that you see that people fall into the trap of as they're trying to improve their skills? I love this question because I, I did it firsthand. I made so many mistakes. And like I said, I played with Greg Norman, who back then was the best driver of the golf ball. Mm -hmm. Payne Stewart would have been one of the best long iron players of the golf ball. I played with Ben Crenshaw, the most beautiful putting stroke I've ever seen. Tom Watson, who was the epitome of a scrambler when he couldn't hit around Seve Ballesteros. And I'm watching all these guys, and I wanted to be every part of them, you know? And, and <laughs> Amalgamation who, of all those elements. No, yes. but who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? But my, the temptation, you know, you come out here as a young player, and you, you, you walk down the range, and you have every equipment manufacturer. You see all the technologies out there, and there's more, more of it now than when I started. But my mistake was trying to do all of it at once. Mm -hmm. I, I could, if, if I could go back and do it over again, I would say, all right, let's do one thing at a time. And, and the, the times I've been out here, whether it's trying to help another player get better or just giving advice to a younger guy, it's, it's hard to make a lot of changes in a short amount of time. Mm -hmm. And it's something a lot of players have fallen into that trap. Yeah. So patience in the process and recognizing that 
we are each in and of ourselves unique in terms of DNA, unique in terms of fingerprint, unique in terms of skill set. And to a large extent, embrace that from your own experience and the experience of observing some of the best or the best players in the world, all of them, quite frankly. How did you measure success and has that changed over time? When you were a player, that is, how did you measure success and has it changed over time? I think it's always going to be measured on whether a guy wins tournaments or not and ultimately whether they win major championships and how many. I mean, mm-hmm. when we go down in history and look at the greatest players that have ever lived, and you see Jack Nicholas and Tiger Woods, do you really care how they did it? It's, it's that way. You, you, you know, now as I get older, I'm more mature. I like to see a guy do it with some, some class and some style, maybe some... You know, Jordan Spieth would be an idol to so many kids the way he goes about his business. And you can measure it that way as well. But, you know, Greg Norman won only two major championships. And you would say, is that an underachievement for a guy like that? But he, he did it with such a style that you'll always remember him as one of the great players that won worldwide. And mm-hmm. that, that was another thing we haven't talked about that is I thought, and to, to be great too, that you had to go around the world and, and play against players from other countries because it's, you get spoiled here in America. You, you know, you never have to change currencies. You don't have to change languages or pull out your passport. And then when you go, go around the world, I always thought that was, that was a, an important part and winning that Australian open for me. And that was the biggest win of my career. Cause I played with Greg Norman, the first two rounds and when he was number one in the world and having that, uh, seeing Jordan do that later. That was a right. big deal to, mm-hmm. to see the names on that trophy. For sure. Was there, there a particular moment of crisis or failure? And whilst in your career, it might have been difficult to pass through, it sets you up for later success? No doubt about it. I, I had two things happen. And in, in, I started working with David Ledbetter um, when I was in college. I had my first, really my first formal lesson from a golf professional as a, as a junior. And he gave me a couple easy tips of just about takeaway nothing else i wrote them down kept them you know we didn't have cell phones or emails so i didn't really see him until another year maybe a phone call and wrote him a thank you note saw him the next year at the same course same place down in greenleaf florida gave me a little bit more of a lesson i nicked price and then i ended up moving to florida to greenleaf so that i could work on my game and my swing that was the point of no return for me and we you and i talked about this offline before we started talking to each other about how that curiosity and trying to improve sent me down a, a irreversible path for a while. And I missed my last five cuts of 1985 and finished 125th on the money list. Mm-hmm. Now, finishing 125th is lucky because I couldn't have gone through Q school and made it. There's no chance. I, I had driver yips. I was hitting it so badly. I started 1986. I missed nine cuts in a row. So I missed 14 cuts in a row. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I was doing some big soul searching and I was waking up in the morning with numbness in my arms and my hands from being so afraid to hit tee shots. And I, I kind of threw every swing thought out the, the window and I had a, a remarkable thing happen. I went to see at the request of Bob Rotel, I went to see Peter Costas and Costas saw the, the position I was in. And he, he was the first guy that asked me of all the teachers, what kind of shot are you trying to hit? Mm. That's a pretty simple question. Yeah. The nucleus of being a golfer is what I'm shot? Trying to hit. I'm like, wow, I've seen a bunch of teachers lately trying to get out of this and nobody's asked me that. They're all telling me what they think I need to do. I said, you know, I'd love to hit a draw. And he goes, well, you're probably going to want to hit a draw and not hit it left too, aren't you? And I said, yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's perfect. And he stuck a tee in the butt end of my club and he says, I want you to tee a seven iron up. And we teed a seven iron up an inch high. 
I want you to take it back and make the butt of the club face the ground on the backswing and on the follow-through. And I, he says, I just want you to hit 100 yards, 7 irons. It was the easiest thing in the world to do. But I didn't know why I was doing this. This was the genius of Costas back then. And I hit 10 7 irons. They all hit draws. He goes, that's what I want you to do. Nothing else. That's your lesson. Mm-hmm. Do it with every club. Brilliant. And Cameron, 1986, I qualified as second alternate here at Shinnecock. Mm-hmm. And I came here. I played two or three practice rounds when P.J. Boatwright was the president of the USGA executive director. He kicked me off the course on Wednesday. He said, you're not in this field. You've got to get off here. And I ended up not getting in the event. I flew to Chattanooga, Tennessee, where there was a, another event opposite this, PJ Tour event, and I won. Brilliant. A month after missing 14 cuts in a row. Brilliant. It was an incredible story. And, and the next week, we played in Atlanta, and I was going in the men's room, and I'm at the urinal, and I'm doing mine of my own business, and who walks in but Raymond Floyd? <laughs> And I go, hey, nice going. He goes, you too. <laughs> so to have Floyd actually know that I went to Chattanooga, it was... <laughs> to recognize it. It, 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 it turned my career around. It turned my career around. You know, a Fantastic. simple little thing like that. And it r- really said to me what we talked about earlier, one thought, not a million thoughts. Yeah, sure. And it was a nice segue there to go into coaching, the advice for, maybe it's a parent out there looking for coaching for their 11, 12, 13-year-old aspirant player, and maybe it is one of the world's best players that is in a relationship with their game where they need some guidance. What advice would you give to select and interact? What sort of relationship would you say is optimal with a coach? I think about this a lot, and I, I love that you've been able to take a player like Jordan Spieth and help him since he was a young kid and bring him to be number one player in the world and major champion. And, you know, the challenge for you is now you have players that have already gotten their tour cards, already had incredible success and have to help them too. Mm-hmm. And to me, there's a process here in how you, you have to know the person. You have to know their little idiosyncrasies about what they think about, how they think, what they think, and kind of match those up with the personalities and adding stuff or taking stuff away. Yeah. Additive or if it's a reductionist. And, you know, people ask me, you know, obviously the, the little time I spent with Rory McIlroy got a lot of notoriety and it's like, people want to know, what is it that you told Rory? It's like, you know, it's, it's much what I didn't tell Rory. Um, and, you know, he had spent a lot of time with Phil Kenyon, who I'm sure the stuff they worked on helped him with his stroke. Phil Kenyon's a smart guy. And it just, it was, to me, it was like, I was in the right place at the right time with what I said. But, you know, I know what it's like to play and to putt when there's pressure on. Yep. I've done that for a long time. Mm-hmm. I still think I can do that. And if you just had a list of all the comments in the press room from the greatest players when they talk about how they felt when they putted or maybe even how they played, they're not too complicated when they're out on the golf course. Indeed. Indeed. Your record speaks for itself. And in fact, in research for getting the opportunity to sit down here with you, uh, I came up with a quote. And the quote is, my only secret is confidence. I every putt as if I've made a million in a row. What is confidence to you? The best definition I've ever heard of confidence would be knowing where the ball is going to go before you hit it. For golf, mm-hmm. knowing that where the ball is going to go before you hit it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's more important to be decisive than it is to be correct. And you can use that for full swing. You can use that for short game. You can use that for putting. I've just been reading a, a great book from a baseball pitcher named Bob Tewksbury. It's called 90% Mental. And he was a, a, a overachiever, a guy that made the all-star team a few times. And he said, 
I found confidence in pitching was knowing where the ball was going to go before I threw it. And I said, boy, that's the parallel to golf. Mm -hmm. And, and finding the ability to do that out here is, you know, you can tell when a player's got that, you know, when you just got to get out of their way. Where does it come from then? (laughs) I don't know if I can answer that, Cameron. Honestly, I, I, um, maybe you could tell me or tell us, but it's something that you can work on. I, I, I truly believe that every player can get better at that. And sometimes it's mechanical drills that help a player to get their technique better. I sometimes think that it's getting rid of some of the many thoughts a player has so they can focus on one. In the case with me, with Peter Costas, was I had so many thoughts about what I was trying to do with my swing. I eliminated the hundred thoughts I had and just had one. Because most of the players have one sort of technical thought or feel when they play. And then be able to turn on their creative side of their brain. And I know every player has that, but every player's how they see something, how they visualize is is different. There's sticking points, aren't there? We, we, get, we get caught up in something else that gets us away from being the best version of ourselves. that artistic player, that, that player, even for the recreational players that have experienced great putting or great chipping or great striking. There are days and experiences like that. They're seem fleeting, but they're accessible. They're within us. And you mentioned something a few minutes back about putting, but under pressure, performing under pressure. Very general question. Where does pressure come from? Pressure comes from the individual. There's no doubt. I mean, it's not like the people watching you are putting pressure on you. If, if you say, oh my gosh, I have a big gallery that you could put pressure on yourself, but it comes from within. And the mantra that I've always used for putting is I've never tried to evaluate whether a, a putt is important or not. And I never tried to Im- evaluate whether the putt was difficult mm-hmm. or not. And I can give you a good example. I was playing in a team event with uh, Billy Andrade, and Billy Andrade and I were, we grew up together in Rhode Island. We we're playing a Peter Jacobs and Fred Meyer challenge. On the very first hole, I had made a par on this pretty easy par five. Billy had a 10 footer for birdie, and it's a team event, two days. So this was a pretty important hole to make a birdie, our starting hole. And he missed this 10 foot uphill right to lefter. And he got angry. He's walking off. He goes, that was such an easy putt. And I said to myself, I said, "Why? that's something I never do. I don't get up over a putt deciding whether this putt's hard or easy or important or not important. And I, it's not like I'm perfect about it every time. Like Johnny Miller sensationalizes everything on TV. Oh, this is impossible. But sometimes he'll have a guy will be hitting a chip shot from off the green from 35 feet. Oh, this is an easy chip. He should be able to make this. And it, it sounds great on television, mm-hmm. but if a player's thinking, oh boy, this is a hard putt while they're over it, I think they're in a lot of trouble. And, and how I can try and help somebody with that, maybe if you've, we've all played in scramble golf events where, you know, when your five players on the team get to putt for a birdie. And it's amazing to me how many players putt better in scramble because there's no consequence of the mm-hmm. miss. You know, there's no worry if you miss, if you're the first guy to go and you whip it, whip it by 10 feet, you can scoop it up because yeah. you have somebody else to go. And I always like that attitude. If I could putt like it was a scramble, if I could putt like I already had made it, if, you know, if you can putt like it doesn't matter. I'm, I'm always seeking ideas, action to lighten the weight of that 300 pound pencil. That's the, perhaps the stress, the anxiety, the arousal that we feel when we're hitting a shot that we inflate the magnitude of that one particular shot in our mind, which speaks to your action point of, I de-emphasize the importance of it. I treat all putts as if they were the same level of difficulty and I just go through my process. I think it's a marvelous attitude for, uh, for the listeners to embrace. 
anything else along those lines that helped you take action to perform better versus worse under pressure that you've discovered on your odyssey in competitive golf? You know, I really think that for anybody that wants, say, putting help here that's listening to this, a lot of players get very ball conscious. You know, contact has become so important now. You know, it's something that's, I think, a lot of the short game coaches are emphasizing how to make perfect contact. And I think that destroys a lot of guys sometimes. We've all hit good chips from not hitting it in the center of the face. You know, whether we bounce the club a little bit earlier, hit it high on the face and it rolled out a little bit more. So I think when, when a player is trying to make a perfectly struck shot, that gets trouble. And I love little games you can play, drills you can do, putting with your eyes closed or looking at the hole when you putt. I almost think that if this game, if puttings was started years ago with players looking at the hole rather than at the ball, like we almost do in every other sport we play, that that would be a fundamental of how to putt. Mm -hmm. So you would get away from the conscious stuff of trying to make perfect. And mm -hmm. one more thing, Kara, I, I love this, is, is practice putting sometimes with a different club than a putter can help you get away from that if, if you're struggling with you know face alignment or you're worried about that stuff if you putt with a, a hybrid or a skull a sand wedge there's no correct way or right way to do that sometimes mm -hmm. that helps get a guy's mind freed up yeah love coloring outside the lines fantastic one final question you've been accommodating with your time over accommodating quite frankly so i really appreciate it if you could give one piece of advice to players aspiring to reach the heights that you reached what would it be i never felt like and i'm lucky that this was something I didn't want to do. You know, I, I loved playing golf. I loved everything about it. I loved hitting a bunch of balls. I loved going on the golf course, probably the most by myself, late in the day, hitting different shots, trying to pretend to me. I was, I was always playing against Jack Nicholas, Arnold Palmer, and Tom Watson. And I love for a young kid to find somebody and imitate the great stuff that they do. And it, it could be multiple people. To me, in a perfect world, you do it with a smile. Mm-hmm. And it wouldn't be a chore. Yeah, that's marvelous advice there. I asked for one thing and you gave us three there. You gave us enjoy what you do. Don't think of it as work. Think of it as process. Simulate by, through role play what you're doing in practice and who you are. Borrow from the identity of others and, and do it with a smile. Enjoy that journey. Enjoy that process. And you've filled out up our cup of knowledge here today. So I thank you for that. And you continue to do that with the viewers on broadcast. So we collectively thank you for that. Thanks for your time. Thank you, Cameron. Thanks very much for listening to this episode. If you want to learn more about Altus Performance, go check out altusperformance.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at Team Altus and Instagram at Altus Performance. Also, thanks to Cordy Walker for his wonderful production work on this and coming episodes of Earn Your Edge. 